Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I am Kurt Heelan, the managing editor of Pro Basketball Talk, with you as always, and I'm really excited about today's show because, well, we're going to take a break from the start of the season and trying to figure out why the Bulls are shooting threes well and talk about the life and times of Kobe Bryant. And we're going to do that with like one of my favorite authors out there. If you haven't read Roland Lazenby's NBA books like Michael Jordan, The Life, um, his recap of the Lakers history, everything. One of the best, if not the best, NBA authors out there. And his new book is Showboat about Kobe Bryant. Roland, thanks for joining us. You bet, Kurt. Hope you're doing well. I, I am. I am doing well. I'm a lot better today because this is a fun topic. I Like I said, I'd much rather talk about this than like Golden State's woes or some other meaningless early season stuff. Um <laughs> This book and thank is, you for the kind words, by the way. Oh, you look, I am, I'm a huge fan. And this book, this is not what Kobe would self-title his autobiography. The book is Showboat. No, which but is, that's not the point of a biography, you know. You have yeah. to sort of bring some balance to the story. Yeah, and for people who don't know, Showboat is the nickname Kobe, I mean Shaq gave Kobe back in the day because, well, Kobe was a bit of a showboat when he first came in the league, wasn't he? He was. He loved to dunk. They, he was dunking a lot in practice. It put tremendous pressure on. He was so athletic and so driven and such a kid, he still put all this pressure on the veterans when he first arrived there. But, you know, Showboat was his father's game. This is a father-son story in a lot of ways. Joe Bryant, Jelly Bean Bryant, played in the NBA, but he came right off the Philly playgrounds, and he was a tremendous showboat player, had all kinds of skill uh, far beyond his years, far beyond the game of basketball in the 70s. And Kobe, of course, carried on that tradition in many ways. Yeah, you spend the first part of the book actually talking about, for people who don't know, I mean, we spent 50, 60 pages on Jelly Bean's career and and travels through you know people kind of remember Kobe or Kobe fans know that he played in Europe but he I mean played in the NBA like you said had this really nice career and then was one of those guys who from the NBA had a really nice career overseas for a while afterwards where he was a big you know a a star sometimes on second tier teams but a star over there but certainly growing up that way shaped Kobe Right, and uh, you know, uh, my my trip to Italy to do interviews and find people, I was really looking for that uh, that young Kobe because he was riding on the 
bus to the games with his old man. He once told uh, his old man and one of his father's teammates that he was going to be better than both of them. He 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 played against older Italian kids and was better than they were. And, uh, you know, I found people who played pickup ball against him in Tuscany on the mountainside where his family lived. And they talked about how serious he was as a little dude running around with these older guys. But I also ran into some of his Italian teammates who said, you know, it wasn't fun playing with this guy. He, he was uh, he knew he was better than the rest of us. And kids would just get frustrated because he try, was trying to do it all himself. Yeah, I... A lot of Kobe's youth impacts the well. Let's be put it this way: the defining, defining thing of Kobe's career to me, and I think you you cover this brilliantly. The book is everything, almost good and bad for Kobe, flows out of his just absolute, unshakable confidence in himself. He, I mean, he just believes he is going to succeed and 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 will himself through anything and everything, and that really does start with his relationship with his parents. Right. His father was, uh, you know, fell victim in his NBA career. He, he was a first-round draft pick, had all this talent. He was a big man who played as a guard, and that was a problem in 1975. But, uh, you know, he also had some confidence issues, and so he washed out of the NBA by age 27. And he was pretty determined that Kobe would not have those same confidence issues. And, of course, Kobe didn't. He was very driven. One of the family friends told me, though, that it was like an old um, segment of The Twilight Zone, a show where there was this adolescent kid, and every day it was his birthday with his family. And the parents were like, oh, it's your birthday, it's your birthday, every day. That was sort of how the Bryants uh, adored Kobe. And it was like it was his birthday every day. He really was uh, raised with this elevated, elevated sense of self. But a lot of kids who grow up in that kind of not I'm going to call it the only child environment I don't think all only child children come out this way but this this kind of doted on way sometimes become kind of pampered and spoiled and Kobe Kobe's personality drove that a different direction it really did uh, family friend said you know uh, he, he got a lot of his skill level from his father Joe but his mother just sort of had this really uh tough element to her personality and that the killer in Kobe came from Pam Bryant. She could just be, well, they could both be described as suddenly cold and aloof. And Pam Bryant has lived much of her life, uh, you know, out of the spotlight. And she and Kobe, over time, have come into tremendous conflict. But uh, he has admitted several times over the years that the real edge in his personality comes from his mother. Uh, and I'll add real quickly, I don't mean to talk so long. Yeah, please do. Uh, but, You're more interested you know, than I am, so please do. <laughs> Jerry West had a mother who was a perfectionist. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jordan had a mother who was really driven. And Tex Winter, uh, you know, the great Lakers and Bulls assistant coach, he would talk to me about these supreme competitors, and he said they're all just 
insane perfectionist about everything. And they drive everybody crazy with their perfectionism. West, Jerry West drove himself crazy yes. with it. But it is the essence of why they care so deeply, why they compete with such a fury, with such silent, hidden anger sometimes. Yeah, well, you also get into something that wasn't covered, and I didn't know as much about, you know, I, I followed Kobe's career, had grown up in Los Angeles, obviously had worked in the NBA media, and, and heck, saw Kobe about three weeks ago because our daughters both play club soccer, so we were at the same field. You get into the Sonny Vaccaro and how Sonny Vaccaro, who was a kind of a kingmaker in the shoe industry and the, and the youth, so and youth basketball, made it a mission of his to not let Kobe be involved with the two organizations he hated most, the NCAA and Nike. Right. And in fact, Kobe was the instrument of Sonny Vaccaro's uh, revenge against Nike and the NCAA. And Sonny Vaccaro, of course, was the guy who made billions for Nike because he came up with the idea of paying coaches money under the table so that they're, these are college coaches, so that their uh, athletes would wear Nike shoes. And then he came up with the big idea that Nike should build its future around Jordan. And he, you know, he had to spend a lot of time convincing uh, all the, the Nike top dogs of that, including Phil Knight. But then Phil Knight uh, fired Sonny Vaccaro in 1991 under mysterious circumstances. And the two men have, have had bitter feelings toward each other ever since. And Vaccaro was uh, angry with the NCAA over how he was treated during the Jerry Tarkanian investigations of the UNLV coach. And so um, Sonny wanted, uh, Sonny went to work for Adidas. Peter Moore, who had done all the Air Jordan stuff, the logos and stuff, uh, was the president of Adidas America. And they set out to find the next Jordan. And Sonny's strategy was to go into youth basketball to do it. And Nike was sort of fat and happy and asleep at the wheel when all this happened. But eventually Kobe does, I mean, he obviously does not go to the NCAA as tempted as he becomes because of his the connection he has had since day one with Coach K at Duke. But he does come around and go back to Nike. Uh, he does. You know, it's, uh, it's a complicated tale. But it, it reveals more about Kobe. It also reveals more about why we have the basketball we have today, which is a very young league. Sonny Vaccaro believed that the supremely talented young players could go into the NBA at a young age and start earning money earlier because their careers are limited, let's face it. And so he, in the early 90s, he was looking around for a kid to turn pro right out of high school. He thought Felipe Lopez might be that guy. Um, talking about somebody who was highly, I mean, high, more highly thought of probably than Kobe coming out of high school. Right. Kobe was not known. Um, the only reason that uh, Vaccaro had any connection with the Bryant family is that in 1972, Jelly Bean, Kobe's father, had been the MVP of Sonny Vaccaro's, you know, much-touted, camp for high school stars, uh, a camp that allowed college coaches to come and look at all the high school talent. 
And so in 1994, when Kobe was a sophomore, no one thought he was anything. And Joe Bryant took Kobe to Sonny Vaccaro's camp and just showed up uninvited and went up to Sonny and said, hey, can, will you accept my coach and uh, my son into this camp? And Nike didn't want Kobe. Uh, there was, you know, uh, the Bryant family was well connected to Nike in Philadelphia. They were friends with the Nike representatives, but they didn't want Kobe in, in a camp. And Sonny Vaccaro agreed to let this sophomore in, and there was maybe one other sophomore in the camp. Everybody was juniors and seniors, and it was these were elite invitations, and by invitation only. And here comes Joe Bryant having this, this skinny kid come in the camp. And Kobe was, uh, was there and playing, and Sonny Vaccaro was impressed. He was uh, interested. But he really wasn't thinking anything. But right after the camp ended, Kobe went up to Sonny Vaccaro and said, Mr. Vaccaro, thank you for letting me in this camp. I'm sorry I wasn't the best player here this year. But I assure you that next year I will be. And that gesture hit Sonny Vaccaro like a ton of bricks. He's a very instinctual guy. And he said that was the it factor he was looking for for the next Jordan. Obviously, this was an ambitious basketball family in the Bryants. And that was when, and Sonny Vaccaro told some people that he, that he was of his plans for Kobe Bryant even that summer. And, of course, it took time to develop. But as Sonny Vaccaro said, stealing Kobe away from college basketball was his most clandestine thing, and he uh, he aimed to do that. And of course, he knew the Bryant family was in financial trouble, and he knew uh, they came to realize they were going to have to have money for Kobe's father on the side, and likewise, they're going to have to have a, a, a deal that guaranteed Kobe lots of money before he ever entered the NBA draft. They were going to have to essentially throw the money down to, to make Kobe that guy. And the, the Adidas officials in Germany, you know, they weren't sure about it, but Sonny Vaccaro was, uh, was determined that Kobe was this kid with the it factor. Roland, I'm going to take just a second because the people listening to this, they're not just Kobe fans. They're not just basketball fans. You know they're sports fans, and there's one more podcast from NBC Sports you need to check out. Mike Florio, the insider from Pro Football Talk, maybe the most connected man covering the NFL, has started a new podcast with Paul Allen, the play-by-play voice of the Vikings, called PA and Florio. It's at NBC Sports. It's on iTunes. Look, if you're an NFL fan, you've got to be checking this out. It's going to have some of the best information, some of the best interviews. These are two of the best people in the business, and they're totally connected. So check it out. And then come back to this podcast where we're going to keep talking about Kobe Bryant. Kobe obviously, you know, doesn't go on to college, does go back into the NBA. It's not smooth early on. He struggles to get along with teammates, and that's well documented. But his struggles to get along with teammates, and you cover this brilliantly in the book, they go back to high school. Oh, yeah. His AAU coach, I was stunned that Sam Rines, his AAU coach, had never been interviewed by anyone. And um, he he said, you know, 
we were, and this was also true on Kobe's high school team, particularly when he was younger, uh, but Sam Ryan's the AAU coach, and they had Rip Hamilton on this team, but uh, he said, you know, we couldn't carry but nine guys on the team because Kobe would not come out of the game. He would get upset, and he, he wouldn't come out. And the only way that uh, they could get Kobe calmed down, he was so he wanted to keep competing and keep playing and keep getting better, you know. And he would be working on crossover moves in AAU games, driving the coaches crazy. The only way that team could work is if they had nine players. If they had ten and Kobe had to come out, uh, that wasn't going to happen. And, you know, AAU teams are not like high school teams. These are boiled-down all-stars from a variety of other schools playing on one team. And so Kobe was a, a uh, I mean, it showed early in his life. He was what, what's referred to often as the alpha male, this really talented guy who uh, is just, driven by his own destiny you know it was uh, tough stuff and he wasn't going in high school he's not going to the parties that his teammates are going to like at lower marion it's a very different experience from you know lebron james you're talking about a guy who arguably has spent much of his career trying to or at least up until he left miami trying to kind of recreate what he had in high school where he and his best friends ran the city and you know won everything and that was such a formulative experience. Kobe didn't hang out with his high school teammates. Kobe has been a very aloof person his entire life, and he was incredibly aloof with the Lakers. He uh, and a lot of times, some some people have pointed to that that experience in Italy, being this really talented little kid who was better than the older players. Or, players around him and he, he had to do a lot of things himself because if he passed the ball it might be a turnover in fact there was uh, an indication that the Laker coaches when Kobe would become too headstrong they would say oh he's going to Italy again <laughs> and it, it created a lot of problems there is one thing in this that uh, and I just tried to tell the story straight up I'm not trying to defend Kobe I'm not trying to ridicule him I just wanted to tell the story and the way the whole thing happened over him turning pro at 17 infuriated a lot of people because he was perceived as refusing to play for any team but the Lakers and and you know um, that really despite having this driven personality even as a kid and you know he traveled with the old man he lived the life of a pro over there in Italy he was very much about pro basketball Sonny Vaccaro said that when Kobe signed the contract he looked at him and said Mr. Vaccaro is there any way that I could play college basketball and my parents could have this money and it was just this big indication that here's a 17-year-old kid, he, he doesn't know the rules. No 17-year-old yeah. kid does. He, you know, he is just eager to get to Duke and to try some things with, uh, with this coach that he really identified with. So it's, you know, Kobe got a, 
a negative image right from the start by how he moved into the NBA. He ended up with the Lakers. But all of that was the the effort of Adidas. Adidas had to insist that he go with Arn Tellum as an agent, who was close to Jerry West, who, because they were close, agreed to look at this 17-year-old guard coming into the NBA. No 17-year-old guard was coming into the NBA. That was unheard of when he did it. And so these things happened, but it wasn't as if Kobe or even his family was sitting there saying, well, we got to have this and we have to have that. But the whole process sure angered a lot of people. It did. And the whole Laker thing in part came about because, you know, in that workout, look, Jerry West, as you had mentioned, is a driven person. And, and hey, talent knows talent. Like he, he saw it. And, and, you know, Jerry West has that vision and that is one of the great GMs for a reason has helped, you know, all the way through Golden State. For a good reason. He gets it. And he, he gets the vision. And he saw a lot of himself in in Kobe, in that drive, in that passion. And he realized what he could get. And, and the so, perfectionism. Yes. He saw it. And, uh, you know, Jerry West was the GM who could see everything. Yeah. He could see what the players could do on the floor, and, and he could look past, oh, this is a 17-year-old kid, let's see his skill level. And, and what he saw, that was the big confirmation for Sonny Vaccaro when Jerry West came up to Vaccaro and said, cut off the workout, we don't need to see anymore. And Vaccaro, you know, is uh, he's been around basketball forever, but he's not like a pure basketball guy. He's a marketing and promotional shoe guy and a, an instinctual guy, and he was just elated that the great Jerry West confirmed his Vaccaro's belief in Kobe Bryant. One other interesting note to me that I didn't know much about was, and you talk about Kobe being a 13-year-old boy in 1991 when Michael, uh, Michael Jordan, when Magic Johnson makes his HIV announcement, which to anybody who was a basketball fan at the time is just utterly shocking and, and kind of a devastating event. And it did shape Kobe in his, or at least, I don't want to say shape so much as, as reinforce his drive that he couldn't let other things interfere with basketball. Right. It was a, it was a big factor. I remember Kobe telling me this when I, you know, when I was sitting with him in the locker room before the, um, uh, slam dunk contest his rookie year. It just happened to be that time in the NBA where uh, a freelance writer such as myself could end up sitting in a locker room for 45 minutes talking with Kobe. You know, he was a, he was a guy who in, enjoyed explaining things, and he, he went into all of that. But that was a big deal for, see, Joe Bryant idolized magic. Because Magic was the player that Joe Bryant wanted to be, a 6'9 guard who didn't have to play into the basket, who could be the point guard. And that that, that was uh, a real sticking point in Joe Bryant's career. But Magic Johnson was like a uh, an entity for the whole Bryant family. In fact, they were in Europe in 1991 when that November and 
Joe's getting ready to head into another season playing in Europe when it was announced that Magic was HIV positive. That so rattled the Bryant family that this celestial figure in their universe had to retire abruptly. They immediately left Europe, packed up, and came home. It was like some earthquake in their world. And, uh, you know, Kobe was at that age uh, where you feel things so deeply. He, he remembered just being in mourning. And there was this image of the Bryants loaded up in a car crying on the way to the airport about what had happened to Magic. And, of course, Magic... Was, was a man who affected those around him so deeply, Lakers fans, a beloved figure. So the Bryants were, were understandably upset, but it was, it was just even bigger than in, in their lives than it was in most people. And ironically, out of all that, one of the defining moments of Kobe's career ends up being off the court with the an extramarital incident and, and the, the trial in Colorado. Um, and rumors of other extramarital affairs that, that were a challenge in their relationship. He was far from immune from this. Oh, I, as he matured, uh, when he was there as a teenager, he was somewhat guarded and... Uh, but he, he was young. It was L.A. Um, he fell in love. Um, but Kobe, you could make the case that Kobe had been manipulated a lot by various people. And um, as George Mumford, the, uh, the psychologist, who worked with the Bulls with Michael Jordan and with Phil Jackson's Lakers teams with Kobe. And Kobe considered George Mumford a mentor. George uh, made a point to me that ali uh, that uh, manipulation often leads to alienation. It's why Phil Jackson's stars and players sometimes aren't as close to him as they were when they uh, earlier on because they began to sense the manipulation. But Kobe felt that throughout his life. He felt it with Adidas, it, it probably with his family. And as Sonny Vaccaro said, uh, Kobe was like the Russians with the Romanovs. He got rid of everybody. Yeah. He got rid of, uh, obviously, uh, he got rid of Shaq and Phil Jackson. He got rid of uh, his agent, Arntellum, he, he got rid of Adidas as his shoe company, and he just began uh, wiping out people. And then on the eve of the 2001 playoffs, he threw his entire family out of his life. He just cut off relationships, shuttered the business they worked for, cars were towed, cell phones canceled, uh, the house sold right out from under the house behind his house that his parents lived in was sold almost overnight. And it was a, it was a brutal experience, not just for Kobe's family, but for Kobe himself, you know, he, he ends up in the 2001 playoffs almost catatonic afterward in that locker room stall as his Laker teammates are celebrating, you know, with DMX anthem. Uh, up in here, up in here, the yeah. team's going crazy, and Kobe's 
unto himself over in the corner. It he did himself in this period. And again, I apologize for talking so long. I'm just please don't make a quick point. He did himself, Kurt, tremendous damage. Yeah. And, you know, he, he gets the team. He's in control of the team, and you recall well the Lakers cratered, and they were terrible. They had this horrible losing streak down the end of the season. Kobe didn't get a single vote for MVP. Uh, he curses out his teammates at the end of the season, says essentially they're not fit to share the floor with him, and storms out of the locker room. His life has come apart completely. And he actually, as he ultimately rebuilds it, he the image he crafts in the second part of his career as he changes numbers and everything is probably closer to his personality. The, the, he don't want to, no longer wanted to be like, love me or hate me, you're going to respect me, this is who I am, was probably not only such a great Nike ad, but, but probably closer to who he is as a person than the image that was crafted early on. Right. He, he began talking about embracing the villain. He created the alter ego, the Mamba. He, he did all of these things. You know, Tiger Woods did himself tremendous damage, and he never recovered from it. Most people don't when they do the level of damage to wreck their lives that Kobe Bryant did to himself as a willful young man. And it's a testament to his will. It's also a testament to the patience of Dr. Jerry Buss. It's a, te- a testament to Kobe's continuing good fortune despite that damage. Phil Jackson agreed to return to the Lakers. and Even then, uh, Kobe was about to throw, by 2007, it looked like he was throwing Jerry Buss out of his life, the guy who had stood by and through everything. And lo and behold, here comes the trade. Pal Gasol comes, and suddenly everything's there for Kobe to begin putting it back together. You know, and Phil had written that book and kind of basically said, you know, without the going into the specifics, basically, hey, Kobe's hard to coach. How hard was it for him to repair that relationship, and was it just Kobe kind of realizing, I need this guy? I, it was a lot of all of the above. I, I mean... Uh, you know, Phil Jackson, we've seen today, it's hard for him to find home in the NBA. Yeah. He's not exactly old home week uh, or viewed with tremendous love around the league, as Tex Winter explained to me many times. And Phil had burned a lot of bridges in the NBA himself. But the truth is, Phil is a triangle coach, and Kobe Bryant, who revered Tex Winter, when Kobe was 19... In the forum one day, I was rebounding free throws for him, and he told me that he dreamed of playing for Tex Winter. Tex was my friend uh, with the Bulls. I told Kobe I'd get Tex to call him. Tex called him, even though Tex was an assistant coach for the Bulls. And they began talking, and they formed this relationship. Tex was Kobe's mentor. It wasn't always perfect. Tex could fly off the handle and get in your face. But Kobe was much more respectful than Tex, than Jordan ever was. And so Phil had this triangle player, this superstar. He wasn't perfect, either, either Jordan or Kobe. Any night they could, they had all that talent, all that will, all that ego. 
and they could go off the rails any night in that offense and take it over, and it could lead to disaster because they try to do too much. You know, George Mumford explained to me that he was brought to the Bulls to try and help Jordan gain some measure of compassion, some some feeling for his teammates, and that his job in Los Angeles was much the same with Kobe, to help these aloof, um, demanding, supremely talented figures, supremely competitive figures, to help them to gain a measure of compassion for their teammates so that, that the coaches could continue to build the approach of the team game. And ultimately, a couple guys, I mean, it was hard to become the teammate Kobe respected, and certain guys, Smush Parker, never get close to it, but there were some. Obviously, Derek Fisher, who Kobe came up with and, you know, battled as young players and one-on-ones, and Pau Gasol, on the flip side, pretty much got it the second he walked in the door. Like, Pau Gasol was a guy who, from the first moment, Kobe recognized this was the guy I needed. Uh, He could see... uh... You know, just er- everything that came in the Gasol package, how it would how it would work in the playoffs, how Powell would be a perfect fit for the triangle, uh, his ability to run the floor, his ability to finish, all the things that Powell Gasol can do. And you know what? It didn't hurt that Kobe was down to the to the end of his set of options. He was either going to, you know, here, here's an irony. When I was talking with Kobe that day, I said. You know, how do you as a young guy um, avoid making mistakes? And he said, you know, you can't avoid mistakes, but the thing you've got to really try to do is to not repeat them. Well, he had done himself all this damage by repeating his mistakes and just basically chasing off everybody in his life. And finally, he came to a situation where he realized it. Finally, it, it dawned on him. I can't keep doing this. So he kind of welcomes Pau Gasol in. They have this second great run. Ultimately, this all kind of comes undone. And the, the final years of Kobe's career are, you know, kind of injury ridden. And, and frankly, I, I guess not really a surprise considering how hard he physically pushed himself, but it was vintage Kobe that he could, you know, he blows the Achilles and a bunch of us were like, well, I wonder if this is it. I wonder if he goes, I can't. And that's not how Kobe's ever going to view something. He had to come back from that. He had to play a healthy season to prove that he could do that. And, uh, you know, it's in some ways it's the least romantic but the most impressive part of his resume, it, it's just there, the, the will, the drive, the insanity of it all, the refusal to, to bend to the laws of nature even. Uh, and, and he's going to do everything he can. Uh, and and it, it was all down the stretch that spring. Uh, Mike D'Antoni was coaching him. He said, 
frankly said, Coke is the biggest asshole I've run into. And you hear that time and again. And, and Kobe said, embrace the villain. Yes, that's me when he heard, uh, you know, that Steve Nash said that about him. He laughed because he knows it's true. But I remember when Jordan was killing teams, Jeff Van Gundy uh, bought my book Blood on the Horns because he wanted to show his Knicks team that Michael Jordan was willing to piss off every single teammate if that's what it took to get the best out of them. And he did it willfully. And there is uh, a part of this that is the paradigm for that sort of leadership. I think the game has moved on now. I don't know if we'll ever see guys like Jordan or Kobe uh, maybe Russell Westbrook is the last uh, cowboy, yeah. so to speak. We may see those guys again, but the game has changed a lot. And the powerful figure in the league has changed, obviously, to a, a guy who masters the perimeter game like Stephen Kurt. Yeah, and I think you are getting, I think, I mean, AAU obviously existed when Kobe played, but I think the number of camps and the number of times that these elite players generally see each other and hang out with each other and do stuff at McDonald's events and what have you, there may be an aloof guy. There may be the kind of guy who pushes buttons, but they're, it's a little different dynamic that they came up in than what Kobe comes up in. And part of that is that they do, they are around each other. They do form these kind of bonds earlier. And I think that the leadership style is just different because of that. It is. You know, Kobe went to an all-star game. He had a guy, Donnie Carr, he competed against famously in Philadelphia, and they both went to this, you know, the elite NBA camp for top high school seniors uh, back when the NBA was just starting that business. And uh, they, they were supposed to mix and be friends, and they were carrying their gear in together. And Kobe looks at Donnie Carr and says, don't be upset, but I'm not hanging out with I'm not going to be around. I'm here for one reason. I want to come out of this camp as the number one high school player in America, and I'm not taking time to talk to anybody. It's kind of crazy. And that sort of sums up the kind of approach that both Kobe and Jordan have had. You know, the other part of it is they both had, particularly Jordan, but they both had tremendous post skills. But yeah. the post game is pretty much gone bye-bye in today's basketball in the NBA because teams and uh, youth programs and college teams don't teach it anymore. High school coaches don't know how to do it, and it's, it's largely uh, disappearing from the game. And so those kinds of guys who are versatile, who have the ability to get down in the post like Michael and and Kobe, who are great post weapons, that's that's not how teams play. That's why the triangle is so powerful. It can isolate. It can find ways to make it hard to double team guys like Michael and Kobe, and they can go to work in that mid range post area and just cut you up. But that's you know that's just gone. Yeah, it's also it, it is harder to do that with the new zone defense rules. But I think what you try to find now is there is there are the LeBrons and and wing players who are strong and do post up, but it's they've got to be able to balance it now, and it's just a very different game. You know, we've talked, by the way, you know, more than 35 minutes now, and we haven't even gotten into 
something you could have written an entire another book about, which is the whole Shaq Kobe relationship. <laughs> right, and, and it you know um, some of it you have to wonder. I've wondered this. I don't know. I'm playing penny any psychologist here, but there was part of um, Co- there was an element of Kobe's father's personality that that irritated him apparently a lot, and that is that Joe Bryant who was said to have flown away his NBA career, was considered pretty much a goofball. And Shaq liked to goof around a lot. And, you know, like I said, the Italian guys, the older Italian guys who first started playing with Kobe when he was a 9- and 10-year-old kid, and, and Kobe's own sister who played with him on a youth team once, said the guy never smiled. It was a frown, a a game face all the time. And Kobe just didn't like to play around. Just, it wasn't him. And Joe, his father, was a happy-go-lucky guy. Loved to dance. You know, loved to party. But that's not Kobe. No, and I think that that was just part of the clash. And the problem, I think, for Kobe coming into that situation was... Shaq is the veteran. Shaq is respected by the 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 Ron Harpers or the the Rick Foxes and all the other you know Glenn Rice, all the other veterans on those teams, and he's the big personality in that locker room. That is his locker room that Kobe's trying to kind of become a leader in, and it's it's hard because that's Shaq's team right now, and that's why Phil Jackson kind of has to side with Shaq. Uh, oh, he did. Phil Jackson knew that Shaq had the locker room. He was very crafty about that. Uh, Kobe was a young guy. Phil, you know, doesn't like rookies anyway. He doesn't like young players. He is a guy who believes in the veteran order of the NBA. And and it's like Rick Fox said, you know, you've been climbing the ladder of the NBA. You're a veteran. And here comes this kid right out of high school, and he's so talented, and he plays so hard, and he puts all this pressure on people, and he's going to jump up that ladder ahead of you. He's jumping rungs at a time. And uh, Kobe violated the natural order of an NBA team at the time. And, of course, Phil Jackson's approach is very much about establishing a team hierarchy and then building from that. Because everybody on that team, Phil had perceived over the years, needs to know where they are. They may not like it, but what they'll handle is you telling them directly where they are in the hierarchy. And Kobe was having none of the hierarchy. He was the greatest player of all time. And that he was headed there. I remember him telling me uh, in his frustration, he said, I just want to be the man. I, I, you know, I just want to be the guy in the league, and I'm going to get there. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to get there. And, uh, you know, that was pretty much the, the black and white of his life. It was, and it ends up making, as we've talked before, I think that that's what makes this such a great book, is that, A, it's impeccably researched, like all your work, which is just, you do so much, such a great job of, you know, not only just finding ways to write off trips to Italy, but finding ways to... <laughs> to, to I really worked over there. I, I, I believe you. I do believe you. 
But uh, you, uh, yeah, you. Did, I'm sure you mixed in a nice meal, just for the record. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you've got such. You do such great research and such great depth on these books that it's like you said. I don't. You're not coming in with a, an opinion to sell. This isn't. You're not an opinion piece. It's just you're going to lay it out as a as a storyteller. And Kobe's a fascinating storyteller because, like as I've discussed with you before, I see him as just like this classic Greek fixture out of a, a, a you know a great Greek tragedy play where he has this great strength, but it ultimately becomes his greatest weakness. This drive that is the thing that makes him a great basketball player makes his personal life rough. Eventually, wears his body down. It's it's such a contrast. It is, and it, you know, irony is an overused word, but the guy is throwing irony off like sweat. I mean, it, <laughs> everywhere he turned in text could never get over it. He, you know, he had a tremendous appreciation for Kobe. He worried about all the ambition and all the pressure he put on himself. You know, Kobe was determined to be the greatest, and Tex would often compare Michael and Kobe. And, you know, they had all the different things they looked at physically about him. Kobe's hands were a little smaller. But Tex said the big difference is Michael played three years in that really tightly controlled system at North Carolina. And Kobe went straight to the NBA right out. And we see how he went out of high school. He wouldn't come off the floor. And he comes. His high school teammates would sit there and look at him sitting on the bench. And they they were stunned watching him on TV because he wouldn't sit the bench. He would not come out of games. And the coaches just learned, as his high school coach said, the job was really managing the personality. And and so you've got this personality in him. He has this ambition, and he's in the NBA, and he's violating all this. And Tex said the great irony in this is this guy truly wanted to be the greatest. He was willing to do that. And his chance to do that may have been lost when he decided not to go to college for a while and get more experience in the team game. It's a it's a fascinating thing, and you know the idea. Even Kobe himself thought about going to college. He would go over to UCLA and sit and watch the kids change classes and think about what he was missing. And uh, I, you know, I think everyone said Kobe was ready. Kobe wanted this. Well, that's true. But on the other hand, he just wishes his parents had enough money so that he didn't have to do it too. I think that's part of his heart on this issue. I think that that's really true. And I think Kobe is a very, very smart person. Like this isn't, there are plenty of basketball players in the NBA who probably shouldn't have gone to college. Um, You know, know, in another world, they don't get into college in the same way, or they would have had to work a lot harder. Kobe, Kobe's grades, Kobe's intelligence, Kobe was a college ready person who chose a different path. But I think there's a lot of the, not just the social stuff, but I think the intellectual stimulation and the growth of a person that would have been interesting to see what path Kobe takes if he does that for a couple of years. But uh, we'll, we'll never quite know. It's true. We, we'll never know. More importantly, Kobe Bryant will never know yeah. what would have happened if he had gone to college for a couple of years. It was, it was the whole thing that, um, you know, seized him up in the middle of... Uh, his amateur career and, you know, transformed him into a pro player when he was 
really just finding out about the world. You know what? The bottom line, people, is you need to just go buy Showboat. It's everywhere. Now, you obviously can order it on Amazon or better yet, go to Powell's, go to the great independent bookstore online out of Portland. They've got it. Um, or just go to your local bookstore. Uh, you're going to be you're doing the tour. You're doing a lot and doing a lot of local books. I know out here in L.A. you're doing book soup. I imagine you're doing a lot of the, the independent bookstores when you can around the country. I'm sitting in one now as we speak. The, the independent bookstores of this nation are so great. And, you know, they've battled back and they've come back. Yeah. And uh, I love it. Yeah. We, My wife and I, who are book club members and, and avid readers, spend uh, as much as we can in those, in those shops and try not to... Uh, nothing against the fine folks at Amazon who provide a service, but... Uh, uh, right. you know, we, I, it's, it's so great to be in those Roland. Thank you for doing this. And by the way, folks, if Kurt, let me just say, you, you got go it. You're, you're wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh, no problem. It, it's called showboat by Roland Lazenby, the life of Kobe Bryant. And by the way, the Michael Jordan, the life was fantastic and amazing. I, the two books of yours that I'm in, and by the way, blood on the horns was great about the Michael Jordan bulls era. But the Jerry West biography was brilliant if you ever get the chance to go find the life and legend of a basketball icon. And if you're a Lakers fan and you haven't read Roland Lazenby's The Show, you're doing it wrong. Um, it is one of the great uh, just catalogs, of, of, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, of just Laker history and Laker lore. You have to go get it. Roland, thank you for doing this. Uh, I look forward to your next work and, and talking to you again soon, my friend. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this. Of course, as always, you can subscribe to this podcast, the PBT Podcast, on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. You can find us on Google Play. We are everywhere. Of course, we can find the podcast at NBC Sports. And also, we have a homepage on Audio Boom that not only hosts our podcast, and you can find all our archives, but also all the NBC Sports podcasts, including PA and Florio, which you should check out. So, Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll be back soon. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.